pain and the hurt and the seeing the, the injustice and we just long for it to be different. Many of you are working in areas where you're, you're making a change and you're making a difference but there's an ache in our soul and our bones sometimes that says, I'm desperate for a touch of heaven. I so much want those who are perhaps not yet knowing Jesus to know what we know. And I wouldn't trade moments like just for anything, would you? And, and I so much want my family and my friends to know what we're experiencing this morning, whether you feel anything or not, the reality that there's a different life to live than the strife and the hurt and the hardship. The reality that there's, there's something more than just chasing the next mortgage payment or the next holiday offer. That there's something more than the next promotion. As good as all those things may be. But a relationship with the living God and deep, deep fulfillment and forgiveness from sin and moving into eternity forever with God's big plan, there's so much more. Don't you agree, church? Please take your seats for a moment. I'm going to read you one of those strong passages from the Bible where you're just going to say, I just want to leave the world behind and, and just be totally engaged with God. You know, I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm sick to death of, of what the world might have to offer. I don't care about the new car. I don't care about the, the latest phone sometimes. But then there are other times when I feel like, you know what, that's so interesting. That's so important. We can help people with that. And some of you are just really with me on the first half of what I'm saying, but right now you're saying, oh, don't spoil it now, Pastor Mark, by telling us all the gadgets we should have. John says this in his first letter. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Any, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And this is our dilemma. We really want to love God, and yet we live here. I thought about this this week. Can you get milk out of tea once you've poured it in? Can you, you know, how does that work? I know, if you put some sugar in your tea and you stir it up and you think, oh, I didn't want sugar, can you get the sugar out? Now, there will be scientists amongst you and say, ah, oh, Pastor Mark, this is what you do. Because I know when I was doing chemistry with Mr. Wilde, my chemistry teacher, that if you put salt in water, you can boil the water off and the salt's left behind, but you've lost the water. And it seems to me that when we read strong scriptures like this, we think, 
I'd love to just separate myself off from the world, but we've got strong connections with it. And we read these strong verses, and our first answer as Christians is often to hunker away, to come away, get a little community, start a monastery, leave the world behind, because the Bible says we're not supposed to love any of the world. Or what we try and do is we try and make a perfect environment where nobody can spoil what we've got here. Don't let the world in the church on Sunday mornings, Pastor Mark. And I'm thinking, well, you brought it in with you, but never mind. And we try and make a perfect environment. But have you ever heard of the Garden of Eden? How well did that go? You see, we're in the world. But Jesus said, I don't want you to be of the world. So when John says, do not love the world or, uh, or anything in it, what does he really mean? What's he talking about when he uses this concept? Because it would be quite impossible to have nothing to do with the world. What he doesn't mean, first of all, is he doesn't mean the earth. And he doesn't mean the wonders of the earth. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. And it's wonderful the natural physical world declares the glory of God. In fact, this heavens declare the glory of God. I love that Blue Planet program and, and Richard Attenborough and all of that stuff. Don't you? The, the kind of, you know, the nature programs. Do you like those? You know, Richard Attenborough and the gorilla is taking care of his young. And he's taking the fleas out of here. And I'm just fascinated by all of that, aren't you? And, and it's great. And I see God in that. In fact, Paolo would teach you in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and 28, it says that we are to rule over the earth. That we're not to detach ourselves from it, that actually we are to be good managers, good stewards of the resources we have. The other thing that God doesn't, uh, uh, John doesn't mean when he says, do not love the world, is he says, he doesn't mean, do not love the people of the world. Can I quote the most famous verse to you in the Bible? For God so loved the God so loved the world. It means the people of the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that's God's plan for you today. John does not mean that we cannot connect with the people of the world. What John means is is that the thought systems, the attitudes, and the values of the world that drive us away from God and, and cause us to break God's laws, these desires and attitudes that lead us away from God, it's that that John wants us to question and to separate ourselves away from. The things that promise fulfillment outside of God and, and outside of the relationship with God, the things that promise something and yet they can't deliver it, it's that part of the world that John is talking about in this passage. In fact, another apostle, James, in chapter 4, verse 4 of his book, he said this, he said, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world will become an enemy of God. And what the apostles are talking about is this idea that the thought systems of the world, the value systems of the world, the attitude systems of the world, 
It's a real dilemma, isn't it, for us as Christians? We want to be connected and and we don't, we, it's not that we want to look cool, but we want to appear that we are people of the world who are, who are kind of normal, although I challenge the, the fact that there's probably not many normal people in here this morning, because you're all unique and special and lovely and beautiful, before I get myself in trouble. But we want to be those people, and yet, at the same time, we have a huge question about some of the attitudes, some of the thoughts, some of the conclusions, some of the desires that advertisers and the media and and whoever want to put on us. You see, we've got to be really clear about our mission and our purpose. We are to love people and to reach them and pass on the love of God in the same way that Jesus did. In fact, how many of you want to be like Jesus? I want to be like Jesus. Thank you for your outstanding amen. How many of you want to be like Jesus? Well, Jesus, what was Jesus like? Jesus was, was outreaching and connected and loved people. But at the same time, it was said of Jesus. In fact, he said of himself, I only do what the Father asked me to do. So you've got this double connection going on. You've got this real connectedness in love to reach people, but at the same time, this vertical connection to God that wasn't polluted and diluted by that outreach and that connection. We have, a, we have to be the God bridge to people. We have to be the bridge that the world walks over into the presence of God. But at the same time, not to fall into any of the traps and the false attitudes that the world would want us to pick up. So that's our dilemma. We all face that. How to be really close to God and yet how to reach out in love to the world and not make them feel like, ooh, stink you, you're not good enough for us. How can we be that way? How can we not shout this verse, do not love the world, and yet alienate the people of the world who God loves? And yet at the same time protect ourselves from some of the things that the world would place on us. I think the first thing is, you know, we need to remember our mission. Our mission is to reach out to the world, and we must always place our mission above any methods. Some of us have have camped around a method that we used to do or a, a style of Christianity that used to work and culture and life has moved on and we need to make sure that we don't say, oh no, I'm just doing it this way because that's how I like it. And when culture moves on and church moves on and people move on, we become outdated and disconnected and the love bridge to the world collapses. You know, I want to tell you about Colin and Vi Brown. Colin and Vi Brown were the oldest members of one of my churches that I pastored. And uh, they got married in in this uh, building. It was a brick, teapot-looking building. It was lovely. And they got married on their wedding day. 
because the church didn't have bells, Colin arranged, and you've got to think this was in the 30s, he arranged for a, for a, a gramophone with a, with a turn handle on a record to play some bells so that his bride could walk in the church to church bells. And what a hard crowd you are. I was expecting you to go, oh. You know, he just loved his bride. And he lived and loved in that church all of his life. And then I came along and said, Colin, this building's too small for us. We need to move the church to a factory. And those folks said, well, I don't want to be attached just to a place. I believe that the mission is more important. And they led the procession when we walked into our new building and they cut the ribbon. Because they were the sort of people that said, the mission is more important than the methods. I've just taken away the church of his, of his bride. But he loved God more than that. In fact, he came to me one day and he said, well, Pastor Mark, he said, it's great ride being with you. The old pastors we used to have, because he'd preached, they'd been through the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s in church. He said, well, they would come and this new thing called television came out and they'd preach against it. And now you're showing films in the church. You see, you've got to love your mission and date your methods. And some of you, you're kind of thinking, oh, I wish we could do it this way. Why don't we do it? How would you do it back in Africa? Guess what? You're not in Africa. Can you tell by the weather? <laughs> so first of all, we need to keep the mission before our methods. We need to understand that culture doesn't wait for us. It doesn't, it doesn't ask our permission to move on. So we need a radical commitment to God. We need to love God more than anything. because, And then you need a willingness to change in order to share with, with the people God's love. We need to embrace some changes that serve our mission. And our mission is to love people. And change is so hard for all of us. Don't you think? Because what got you here, you enjoyed it. I love the way that I used to dress in the 1970s. Wow, big flappy flares. Wow. I could walk past somebody and slap six people <laughs> at the same time. You know what? One of these days, I'm going to preach in ripped jeans. Some of you are going, oh, good. And some of you are going, what on earth has he been eating this morning? In 2010... When I came to this church in 2008, 2009, in 2010, just at the end of 2010, the, the lady from Friends wore some ripped jeans, and ripped jeans began to come back into fashion from 2011. Could you imagine if I'd have showed up in 2009 with my ripped jeans on saying, I'm your new pastor? They would have said, we need to give him a pay rise straight away. <laughs> Although I looked online this weekend and I saw a pair of ripped jeans for £550. Let me just advise you, church, I'll give you a pair of jeans for £30. You give me the money, I'll rip them for you. <laughs> but who would have thought that? Nobody asked our permission to change that fashion. And some of you are thinking, newfangled people today, why are they walking around with holes in their trousers? See, but to stay connected, you've got to embrace some changes.
even though you don't enjoy it. None of us enjoy it. And I want to say a word to you who are raising children. And particularly some of you are raising children. You've left your country and you've come into Britain. I have noticed something about people who don't adapt to change and who don't say, look, the mission of passing on radical discipleship and faith and life to our children is more important than the way we like it. I have noticed something. I've noticed that the second generation of people put up with that, but the third generation leave. You will lose your grandchildren. If you try and impose a Christianity on them that was good for you, but not good for these people now. Now, of course, some things don't change. The gospel doesn't change. Truth doesn't change. If you love people, that doesn't change. But we need to embrace some things and start thinking, how can now can I connect with the people of the world? You cannot have church like it was in the Caribbean here. Oh, it's gone ever so quiet. You cannot have church how it was in little England years ago here. You cannot have church how it was in Nigeria here. Can I hear an amen? amen? You have to embrace what happens in order to connect now. See, I knew you were with me at some point in my sermon, and some of you are thinking to get off the bus, but stay on the bus because we're going to get to a good place. You see, to stay connected, we need to keep talking across the generations. We need to keep talking to each other. We need, keep need to say, how do we explain truth to each other? Now, in the Bible, it says, one generation commends to another the works of God, and they will tell of your mighty acts. And we assume, it's in Psalm 45, 145, verse 4, and we assume that means that the older generation are telling the other generation. But actually, what it means is that both generations are talking to each other, telling the mighty acts of God. And do you know that one of the particular ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist was that in the very last verse of the Old Testament, in Malachi, uh, 4 verse 6 it says he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents what Jesus is trying to do is a generational thing where we listen to each other so mom and dad you've got to listen to your children and children you've got to listen to your mom and dad we've got to listen to those who are younger than us in fact more than just on the internet I don't know how Instagram works in fact, my daughters roll, my, roll their eyes when I call it the Instagram. It's not the Instagram, it's just Instagram. <laughs> I don't even know what it does. But what I do know is if I post a picture online of something in church, I get 145 likes within the first minute. So something's working. Well, actually, I'd probably get 12. But what we've got to do is start hearing each other. So I want to say to some of you older people who have brought children into this country, start listening. BCC is a great place for you to be able not to just pass on a style or something of preference, but to begin to pass on radical God-centered discipleship of how we're going to win this world now. Can I hear an amen, everyone? Yeah, come on, let's give the Lord praise. We want to win the world. Another way to stay connected 
First of all, we've got to embrace change, keep the mission first. Secondly, we've got to talk to each other across the generations, but we've got to apply what we know. That we don't just quote scripture, we apply the truth that we know. So when you're at work, see, people, have, people have had enough of information, now they want wisdom. So that you, you can age really well if you can say, oh yes, I know that used to work, but this is how I think it could work now. You've always got to think, how can I apply the scripture? Because when we read verses like, do not love the world, we run away from the world, quoting our scriptures instead of running to the world with godly wisdom saying, this is the way to live. So when I come in my ripped jeans, don't laugh at me. I'm just trying my best to connect. But I won't be wearing a medallion ever, no matter who connects with that. You see, we want to stay connected because we want people to have what we have. We want people to have that love of Jesus. Not just a style, but a living relationship with Jesus. Can I hear an amen, church? That's what we want. But we do need to also protect ourselves against the thought systems of the world, against that which would attack our faith or dilute our faith. And this is my main point. I want to be like Jesus. And by looking at his life, I believe that you can live in such a way that you can be totally, radically in love with God and at the same time, you can be connected in the right way to the people of the world so that they can know the love of God without spoiling or diluting or changing your faith. And we have to learn how to do that. So as well as posturing towards culture of we want to be the love bridge, let's look at some of the protections against culture that we need to lift up. First of all, when, when John says, do not love the world, what does he mean? John doesn't mean our preferences. There are some things I really love. I, I love some things about living in Britain. I love it. I can't think of one right now, but you know, I do. <laughs> what he's talking about is our motivations and our attitudes in our attitudes and our motivations, he's saying, where do you place your value? Where do you place your foundation? Where do you place your trust? It, you can set these things, your trust, your values, your motivations, your attitudes, you can set those on God, or you can set them in the world, but you cannot do both. You will either serve one or serve the other. You have to have a heart that says, I am radically in love with you, Jesus, and I want to be filled with your desires. Mark Twain said this, that, that humans are the only created being that can blush, and they're the only being that probably should do. There are times when we need to question what the world is bringing to us. John describes our heart attachment or loving the world in three unusual ways. And 
they have three unusual phrases, so I'll unpack them for you. The first thing is, he says, the, the love of the world involves the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. What does he mean by this phrase, the lust of the flesh? And what it means is, it's that lack of control over our internal desires and cravings. That's what, that's what the flesh means. It's our self-orientation life where we say, I am going to fulfill my desires to the max. You see, it's not wrong to have desires, but it is the level in which we fulfill them that can often break us away from God and turn us away from God's laws. We make, if we make our desires more important than God's will in our lives, then we begin to cross over a line that God's asking us to question. We begin to say to ourselves, this desire is more important than following God. And I want to be talking to parents today. Some of our desires for our kids are not the desires of the Lord. Do you know that one of the commandments, the first commandment, says you'll have no idols before me. And some of us have made our kids into idols. We want the best for them. We want everything for them. We want, they've got to have the best job, the best money, the best comfort. They've got everything that we didn't have. And some of those desires, in moderation, are completely good as parents. But then there are one or two of us who are absolutely killing ourselves to bring that about and driving our kids away from God at the same time. Because we're not teaching them to be disciples who love Jesus. We're teaching them that God will give you everything and when he says no, you need to rebel against it. You see, the, the lust of the flesh is when you allow desires to go out of control. Think about this. An addiction starts somewhere. It starts with the extra drink or the extra food or the lingering eye. It starts somewhere and then it becomes a pattern. And I know there are lots of other mitigating circumstances around it. I understand that. But I just wonder today if you're on the edge of starting something and you need to draw it back and say, hang on, this is, is, is God okay with this desire? The desires of the world cannot fulfill their promises. They will tell you that you are valuable and significant, and then when you go after them, you'll end up feeling lonely and empty. It was Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's he who can fulfill your desires. And one of the ways that we need to live in the world is to question what they say we should go after. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart anyway. God is our desire. The second thing that John describes this worldly attitude is he says the lust of the eyes. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? But what he means is, is that the cravings activated by what we see or that which we focus on. If we feed it and over-focus on it, what happens is it creates an attitude on things so that we want it. 
If you keep looking at a cream cake and you keep examining it and say, oh, I don't think I want it. I don't think I want it. I don't think I want it. Oh, this is a great cream cake. I don't think I want it. I think I want it. I'll have it. <laughs> because you focused on it. You focused on it. And it's about physical seeing because you know that if you look at something long enough, it creates a desire in your heart. It's about physical seeing, but it's also about focus. What do you focus on? You see, our eyes and our focus are like a gateway to stimulate desire. If you continually focus on it, you'll get into a cycle of, I see it, I want it, I'll have it. So I want to ask you today, where's your focus? Are you so focused on my child has to have a perfect life that God's will in your life has become nothing? Where's your focus? Of course we need to give our children good lives. But where's your focus? Jesus said this, Oh, sorry, in Hebrews it says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, or the author and finisher of our faith. We protect ourselves from the culture of the world by always questioning, what's my focus? Am I focused on the right things? Am I just focused on surviving? Am I just focused on getting through this next week. Where's my focus? If you don't have a spiritual focus, it's surprising if you don't have a spiritual life or unsurprising. Third thing that John says is this, the pride of life. And he means by this, the pride in our possessions or the pride in our livelihood and the pride in our style of living or the pride in our philosophy. Some of us live by Nike philosophy. Oh, let's just do it. And we're proud of that. But actually there are times when you don't have to have that philosophy. You have to slow down and love people. We're actually stewards of the things and the gifts of God that he's given us. We're not supposed to be boasters about it. We're not supposed to see our value and our status in things. And I, I, I want to just have a word, if I can, with people who run your own business and you... You're building something up. Well done. You're doing a great thing. But let me just caution you in the Lord to say that's not where your value is or your status is. Your value is in that you're a loved uh, child of God and that you're a children of the Father. Your status is, like Ruth prophesied earlier, that you have the ring of belonging into God's kingdom. That's where your value and your status is. Now, it's great that you're running your business. And that's wonderful. But we don't want to be self-made people. I'm created in the image of the Father, in Jesus. We're children of the Father. Deuteronomy 8 verse 18 says this. Remember the Lord your God, for he is the one who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so he confirms his covenant that he swore with your ancestors. It's, we have to think to ourselves, thank you God. Thank you for the gifts of my lifestyle. Thank you for my abilities. Instead of grasping, we're trying to foster gratitude. Thank you, Lord, that you were able to help me to do this. 
I wonder sometimes whether or not we need to go to our workplace and dedicate our workplace every day to him and say, God, whatever I achieve today, may it come from you and may I worship back as I return it back to you. Concerning our possessions and livelihood, our business, we have to ask if we're getting our value and our status from them. And it's good to work hard, of course it is. But we have to ask if we're being good stewards, that we're trying to live in a margin, that we have something left over to give, and that we're, we're trying to see God as our source instead of everything coming from us. You know, I've stopped asking the question now, is this wrong? I've stopped asking the question, well, what's right with this? Maybe that's a question that we all need to ask. You see, I see this pattern in Eve in the garden, the lust of the flesh, the pride, uh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I see the fact that she tasted the fruit. She, she fed an appetite. That's the lust of the flesh. She, she fulfilled something about her by eating. And then she saw the fruit. She focused on it and thought, that little fruit, how can that be so dangerous? She looked at it. She had the lust of the eyes. She focused on what was forbidden and said, surely it can't be that wrong. That's the lust of the eyes. And she looked at for fulfillment in a life that was not hers to have. She, she was told, you will be like God. And that just wasn't true. And what the world does and what what the enemy does is he throws out an untruth in the hope that you'll believe it and you'll go after it. And that's the pride of life. What I want to say to you today, we can protect ourselves from culture and yet we can reach out and love the people in culture. Who's with me? Amen. So I want to close today by saying your position in culture is that we should always look towards the long term, the eternal, the what God is developing, what God is doing. What's happening with you? You know, some of you have known I've been running, and for those of you who are running marathons and half marathons, keep me out of it. Stop asking me whether I'm going to run a marathon. I'm not running a marathon. You're going to have to drag me around to run a marathon. 5K, 10K at the max, and then I'm out. I'm done. But one thing I've learned in my running, and I learned it and then read about it and found out I was right. What I noticed was, is when I was running, I'd I'd look like five yards ahead and, and be looking just ahead, and I was breathing heavier, and my, my stride was shorter. But when I picked my head up and looked into the distance, I got it, stride getting longer, you know. And I know it looks a bit arrogant, but I'm like, I'm running for God. <laughs> you know, I'm running around Summerfield Park, and if you see me, I may not notice you because my head's up. I'm up. But what I noticed was it changed the way that I ran. My stride was longer. My times were faster. My, my breathing was easier because I was not hunched over. My form was better. And I want to say to you, what are you looking at in your distance? Of What are you going to be like? What's your goal? I had a friend of mine named Wayne Lee. 
And Wayne said to me, I want to lead 250,000 people to Christ. And you know what? He worked out a scheme. He's almost done it in his lifetime. Isn't that amazing? 250,000 people have come to Jesus because Wayne said to himself, I've got a goal. What's your goal? Come on, come and stand with me, if you will. I want to ask you a really important question. If you look to the longer term, Proverbs says this, let your eyes look straight ahead, fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to your paths and your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. BCC, in the Lord, let me say to you, pick your head up. Look wider than just your immediate circumstances. Go and look beyond into what God might be doing. Look at the big picture. BCC, have a goal, a discipleship goal. This is the question. If you carry on living today how you are living, what type of disciple will you be tomorrow? Come on, raise your hand with me. If you live today and you carry on living today how you're living, what type of disciple will you be tomorrow? What will your prayer life be like? What will your knowledge of the scriptures be like? You need to make a long-term goal and say, God, I want to live forever. See, this matters because the world's not going to ask you. They're never going to ask you permission of when they change. But you need to give yourself permission and God permission to make a change in your life. You see, you need to choose eternity over the temporary. The world does not last. It won't last. So look to ways of increasing your love to God. In fact, the scripture says, the world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. So today, if you know that you're out of the will of God in an area, you need to look past your current circumstances and begin to say, I am making a goal to get connected and back into the will of God. Because those outside of the will of God, they will not go to heaven. We're going to sing a worship song. And then I've got a particular thing that I want to ask the parents in particular to do today. Let's sing together, shall we?